Yes, it's a biggie. My 200th episode. And who should join me? But one of the biggest names in cocktails and my constant companion during lockdown. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion. And this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. 199 episodes ago, I had a mic and bottoms up to end the show. Now we have reached the 200th episode. I have a mic, bottoms up, and 199 episodes of Lush Life Podcast. This is due to the hard work and dedication of everyone involved with a Lush Life Manual and Lush Life Podcast especially my producer, Evo Terra, who was with me when Lush Life was in the idea stage and who has remained my work partner throughout my Lush Life journey. Everyone who sat across from me has become part of the Lush Life family. I've been inspired by all their stories and lucky enough to have tasted some of the best drinks in the world thanks to their time and generosity. Of course, there would be no show if you didn't listen to it. And I thank you for tuning in every Tuesday. Planning my 200th episode was easy. I spent my lockdown with Lynette Moraro. For those of you who don't know her, where do I even begin? Her bio is longer than this entire episode. She began her career working at the iconic Flatiron Lounge in New York City and has worked as a bartender, senior bartender, bar consultant, and rum ambassador for Diageo. She is now the bar director at Brooklyn's hotspot, the Llama Inn, and the newly opened Llama San. She's won tons of awards for her work, including the James Beard Award as one of America's leading female mixologists, 2009. She's received the Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards for World's Best Bar Mentors and the inaugural Philanthropy Award with co-founder Ivy Mix for their work in Speedrack. She most recently won the Altos Bartenders Bartender Award 2021. The award is voted for by a group of bartenders who are asked to name one peer who pushes the boundaries of what it means to be a great bartender. How did I spend lockdown with her? Well, Lynette launched the masterclass.com mixology platform in March 2020, just as the world was going insane, helping home bartenders live life one cocktail at a time. How could I not have her on the 200th episode? So enough of me. Let's get to Lynette. Now, I am so excited to have you on the show because you and Ryan were my pals during lockdown. Because the minute I saw that you were doing a masterclass on cocktails, literally, I was in there. I love that. <laughs> I was supposed to be at Bar Convent, Brooklyn. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it. And I was supposed to meet you because you were the headliner for Spirits of Peru. And I thought, since this is my How to Drink series, we could start getting into your life by learning more about your love of Latin and South American and Caribbean spirits and what they are and why you love them and what the flavors are? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it all comes from the things that we loved 
growing up. Uh, for me, I am of Puerto Rican descent, New Ricans. That means I'm first generation born in, in New York itself. But the traditions of food and flavor was always something that carried through. And as I kind of got through the craft bartending world, I started at the Flatiron Lounge uh, with Julie Reiner, and I did learn classic cocktails and fresh juices and combinations and putting it together. I think I gravitated towards that world because I did love cooking and, and putting things together in that way. And that came from my early exposure to lots of flavorful food. And that led me to working in restaurant bars, which is for me was a place where I could just broaden my experiences, have access to more ingredients. And this was definitely before cocktail bars were bringing in a bunch of molecular tools and things. You know, we were just starting to kind of get there because we were going back to like classic cocktails, which don't use a lot of those. But I love the flavors that you could have uh, with an arsenal of kitchen ingredients. You know, as I worked through different restaurants, I, you know, did uh, Freeman's, which was a classic America restaurant, really like a you know, America's version of gastropub, but with high-end cocktails. So you had some sort of influence, but it kept getting deeper. My first consulting gig was with a chef, um, Akhtar Nawab, uh, Brian Miller, and I decided to do that project together. And it was an Indian cuisine. And we just kind of talked through and we're like, well, rum and tiki actually fits in that space because you're thinking about spices, flavors, flavor building. And we put together quite a crazy rum list. And that was someplace that I was very comfortable in because that is a traditional drink of where I'm from and where my family is from. And then as I kind of like went through, I became a rum ambassador for Zacapa on uh, that full time. All right. We, we have to go back for a sec. Yeah. Before we go forward. All right. Going back to your childhood yes. and these flavors. When I think of South American spirits, Puerto Rico, obviously rum is the first thing I think of. Yes. Um, was there always rum in your house? And like, what kind of things were your parents making or cooking that brought to mind the flavors that you brought with you, should I say, forward into your career? Sure. So, I mean, one the biggest one is Coquito, which is like our version of eggnog for Christmas, which is a coconut, cinnamon, a uh, little vanilla, depending on what everyone's house recipe is. That can be condensed milk and evaporated milk. Or you can do it from a fresh grating the coconut. Egg is optional. A lot of families kind of don't really use the egg, but you could use it for something richer. But those kind of things were like always a little, you know, cheeky thing at Christmas that my mom would make every year. But the flavors specifically, you know, you would see a lot of roasted meats, pork. Rum was definitely around. And so you could smell those flavors and aromas and they all go well, right? All the baking spices and things go with that type of cuisine. So a lot of that kind of high flavor. Um, was there a specific rum that your family always had around? We always had Bacardi. That was always around the time. It was between Bacardi and Don Q were the two, depending on which houses that you would see. And that was, you know, because they were supporting the island further on as a, as I started to get more exposure. There were things like Jaron de Berlito, which is from Bayamon, which is where I have a lot of family. And so I would go and visit there every summer. I started to see these products and things. But there's lots of other beverages that would kind of make your palate. So there's a thing called Malta, which is like a brewed malt, heavy, rich, almost like molasses malt beverage that's non-alcoholic, but would challenge your palate as a kid. You're like, whoa, this is bitter. And so you would taste that and you're like, oh, but it was about having a palate that was exposed to a lot young, lots of spices, lots of aromatics. There's lots of different things that you don't get here like Recao, which we can find now in New York, you know, places that carry these things. But, you know, cilantro and lots of those 
flavors, lots of heavy flavoring um, things. So definitely uh, desserts would come into play. So things like flan with good caramel, tembleque, which is a coconut kind of pudding with cinnamon on top. So kind of those flavors kind of always were around. And I think how, how you kind of eat in childhood really does. It's like if you're going to have a challenge palate, yes or no, and it takes time then to figure out where you go from there. Um, so I was fortunate. I've, I'm totally made fun of here because I love Hershey's chocolate and everyone in England is like, oh my God, that's horrible. And I actually met a professor of chocolate and he yes. said, don't make fun of her for liking Hershey's. It's what you like as a child and what you yes. eat as a child that makes that impression and you, you can't help what you love, you know. 100%. I think that's the spices and the flavor building and, and having that, I think it's very advantageous, you know, so I, I like things with bold, big flavor. You know, so that led me to working with chefs because I think there's a similar learning how to flavor build and learning how to adjust levels in your cocktails in different ways is something that always intrigued me, especially as we were coming into, you know, as the cocktail craft cocktail scene kept moving and evolving, the next steps were always kind of figuring out how you would just kind of now take those classics and make them more unique and, and do riffs on them, but bring in these other elements. So when you started drinking alcohol, you know, at 21, when you were in New York yeah. studying, were you drawn to those type, you know, were you drinking rum and Coke or rum or mojitos and those kind of things? Or were you just like drinking beer and, you know, whatever was around? I was never a big beer person. I mean, I've grown into a craft beer palate because mostly because of sours and stouts later. But no, I was drinking, to your point, I was drinking mojitos and, and those kind of cocktails that you were getting in kind of good clubs and places. But then I would have a little sweet palate and do things like, you know, like the Midori Sour was like one of my favorite things to order <laughs> at a great cabaret bar in Midtown. So Hey, I was a fuzzy navel <laughs> yeah. lover. So. And then it was like classic, especially that time too, that we were like, okay, I'm going to take it light. I'm going to have orange flavored vodka and soda. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry I interrupted you as you started working with um, restaurant bars did you feel like oh yeah this is kind of my home because I can mix all of these things from my childhood together with my love of drinking 100% I think also so much too like when you sit and talk to chefs a lot of what comes to brings out in their cuisine or at least the ones chefs I worked with were our family recipes and what they brought with them from their childhood too. So you're going through this exercise together. And when I met Chef Eric Ramirez and we opened Llama Inn in 2015, the first things he talked about were cooking with his mom and his grandmother and bringing those recipes from Peru. His grandmother is of half Italian and half Japanese Peruvian background. So lots of different flavors, lots oh, yeah. of different culinary influence. Um, and then Peru itself has that as well. So, you know, there's influence a bit from the Chinese, there's influence from Japan. And then, but they're, you know, when you get down to the core flavors, like using all the different peppers, the ahis, all, et cetera, and then how rice plays in and beans, and which are also like the other cultural things that we share, you know, there was all these recipes that he was talking about coming from his family and specifically from the women in his family. Even like, you know, we still to this day make his grandmother's version of chicha marada, which is a purple corn drink that every household has their recipe. That's an excellent ingredient for cocktails. Let's use that. Let's take that. And our first menu was all about taking riffs on classics and substituting and, and bringing in something like Pisco, which for, you know, the general American public, especially in 2015, was like, well, I don't know, what's Pisco? And you're like, it's unaged brandy from Peru. And then they're like, what does that mean? So putting it in context that they would just enjoy it. So split basing some cocktails, maybe Pisco and tequila riffs, maybe Pisco and rum riffs, which we did. 
And that would help give people an accessibility to the ingredients. So that was kind of just a way that we started to introduce it. And it made sense because you know, he was also bringing Peruvian cuisine at that at a higher level to, to Brooklyn for like Williamsburg trendiness. And, and the ideas were just finding ways to communicate what these spirits, what these ingredients, what the flavor profiles were. And, you know, now I, I love seeing that Pisco is being used. So many more Piscos now have made their way to the United States or even distribution around the world because there's a bigger demand and playing with them. But that was kind of a wonderful way to to understand and learn a new culture of flavors and to help um, advocate for those spirits and, and help give them exposure. And when you started off, what was the, kind of the progression for the South American spirits? So when you started working, I assume it was, was it like rum, rum, rum. So there was lots of, well, obviously not, maybe not as many rums as there are today. Did you feel that there was one other thing? Like then it was Pisco time and then it was Guardiente time and then yeah. it was something else time. How, how did that work as you were growing as a bartender? Yeah, I think what's interesting is, you know, like I said, I, I started working after doing the program at Elitaria with Brian Miller. I actually took a two-year stint working with Sacapa Rum. And they were just kind of starting with Diageo at that time. That was when they were working in a joint venture. And I was exposed to a whole different style of rum. So Guatemalan rum is very different from the kind of rum I grew up with. Maybe I was using some Guyana rum. I was using like El Dorado in our program. Uh, I was using some Lemon Heart in our program. I didn't really had it ex been exposed yet to things like Guatemalan rum and, and this elegance and flavor of something that can be aged in high altitude a lot longer and, and starting to see those more premium rums uh, come into the market and see how they were working on changing the perception of rum. And I think that's a lot of the time, too, with the perception of Latin American cuisine as well, is that there's a perception that these foods should be inexpensive. You should be able to get that. I think that rum suffers that same thing, that you it should be cheap and easy to get. Um, and I think there's a whole bent about the agriculture, the process, and making sure that the people who are making it are compensated properly for these things. And this idea that of changing a whole perception of a category is really hard. So I think what I've loved seeing in the in like the last you know, all, more than 10 years of seeing rum, you know, and rum's had its moment every, every year. There was like, it, this is going to be the year of rum. This is going to be their rum. This is the rum. Like, you know, it's been steadily growing and the category has been getting more share. And I love seeing that you have more people investing in it from the communities of where it comes from. And so you're really seeing this authentic, really wonderful way of bringing this, this beautiful spirit that can be grown so many places that I love it because it has so much terroir, you know, where a rum is made, uh, where the cane is grown, all of that makes such a difference to what that end product is. And you can see that all over the world when you taste them. And I, and I, I think that's why that category is so exciting. Was that a real surprise for you when you started drinking? Did you think Oh, yeah. Rum is rum. It's Bacardi and Don Q. I mean, was that a huge surprise to you as well when you started playing with rums? Yeah. I mean, I think when I, you know, I was lucky because I was at Flatiron Lounge. So access to things that were coming in, you know, I even had early exposure there to Pisco. Barsol was one of the first brands that was coming into bars and saying, hey, I try my unaged brandy, try my Pisco, you know, and and so I had early exposure while I was starting to bartend to, to have access to more of these ingredients. But yeah, I mean, it was really enlightening to see things other than, you know, crystallino rums and 
you know, taste aged rums that were different from the aged rums and that I would taste in Puerto Rico, which, you know, have can have a bit of an oakier profile, a little bit more, you know, because you're at high, mm-hmm. high temp, real extraction from the wood really quickly. And that's different styles. So you're making styles of rums that are more bourbon-like. And then to be able to taste some other rums from all over the world, you know, things like Eldorado 12 and Zacapa and some of the the rum Clement from Martinique, where you would taste kind of cognac style rums that had a different uh, flavor profile and an elegance. It was a, definitely very eye opening. But because I had done that project, Elitaria with Brian, I had already seen the range of rums. And, you know, it was a very, especially at that time, like we had a really great program and rum was able to like really help us really make a program that worked with so much of the food because you had this toolkit of flavors that you could adjust and balance levels depending on what the uh, menu items were going to be. But, you know, I think now that we see it, I think through the agave boom, and then you're seeing mezcal, sotol, um, bacanora, all of these, you know, the whole agave range is exploding. I think in general, there's just an interest in spirits that kind of help you travel to places, you know, and this idea, and probably more so because of the pandemic, but like really experiencing culture, experiencing a place through its food and drink. And that's what I'm interested in. And and that's where I see at this last Bar Convent Brooklyn, we didn't just have Pisco. We had the most Pisco's ever shown, but we also had vodkas being made from these Peruvian potatoes, which have excellent agriculture, red potato versus the purple potato. And seeing that into a few of the brands like 14 Incas or Cortose Incas, and you'd see ones made from quinoa, like, uh, and then you'd see an Amazonian gin using you know, all the botanicals that you can get in Peru. So different flavor profiles layering into that. Things like um, gamo gamo, which is a very high acid berry, or um, aguamanto, which would be gooseberries in there. And like, so just these really beautiful flavors and, and things that are, that are very unique. And then some other like really cool herbal liqueurs coming from the high mountains where people were, have been making these kinds of spirits for many, many centuries uh one is called matakui which is like a bunch of herbs and i i, I kind of likened it to i'm like it's kind of like chartreuse notes with no sugar so you had like all of the botanicals and all that flavor all that aroma so that was really exciting i was thinking maybe it would be like a gentian if you get mountains in the alps yeah. you know the mountains 100 it has maybe. that kind of vibe and it, it does it has that aroma and the and and aromatics and and I've been playing around with ingredients from the high altitude through the cuisine, things like muña, which is a very high altitude mint, wakatai as well. And these flavors are just like, they're familiar yet not. And they just kind of level up things in a different way. I love what you said about travel through the spirits, because I feel that so much as well, that taking a sip takes you either through the cocktail and its history, takes you way back to also a new spirit takes you forward to what's being innovated now, where it is, where are these people who are making it? Oh, I want to go there. You know, that definitely link to that just as much as food, really. 100%. Hmm. And I think that's really important connecting those two things. One of the other seminars I did at Bar Convent Brooklyn was about sustainable spirits and talking about this idea of terroir and, and things you can do. And we, um, on the panel, was Waluko from Kopali Rum. And, and so I got exposed to what they're doing in Belize, how their rum is made, what how their agriculture plays in. And they have one of their rums, they're putting some cacao in it. 
and, and distilling it. And so that has a different aroma. You know, what's that tradition there? Why is this, you know, that's a, such a cool way. What brought them to thinking about that? And how is that play in their community and what they're uh, enjoying food-wise? And It's um, so funny. I have a bottle of that right here waiting to interview him as well as tequila over here. And Pisco amazing. over here, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I love it that we're seeing this open market and that people are willing to explore. I think that's what's really wonderful. Well, I think the frustration is that after you go to someplace like Barcom in Brooklyn and you try all these, you're like, okay, why can't I get them? Where are they? Are they coming? And so are are they coming? You know, everything that you've mentioned, especially the potato one, sounds so interesting. Yeah, they're they're working on it. You know, I think what was great, the exposure at Barcom in Brooklyn was an opportunity for meeting distributors, people who can help bring these items in. And there is definitely a lot of young Peruvians who are really like this idea of your culture and they want to see their country spirits getting more exposure. And so they're working on ways to import those uh, products so that way they can have more exposure. Uh, and it's and it's really wonderful to see that. So some of them are in and they, the rest of them will get there. But I think having that opportunity um, to showcase was really incredible. Oh, yeah, I can't wait because the more the bartenders use them, the more we get to taste them, obviously. Exactly. <laughs> so um, that's great. Now, now you said that you spoke at Bar Convent Brooklyn and you speak a lot because you are a legend in this industry. <laughs> <laughs> so instead of going way back and starting, you know, we did talk about your childhood a little, but I would love to know what, after all these years of being in the industry, working your way up to be whom you are, um, what do you love doing? What are your passions? What are the things that you really love to do and, and want to continue doing? I mean, I think, you know, it, it was very fortuitous and kind of crazy, the whole masterclass experience. I met the team. They kind of recruited me, scouted me in like September 2019, right when I was opening our second restaurant for Lama Sun, our, our Nikkei spot in, in Manhattan. And we were like crazy in the speed rack season and ryan and i i flew home from speed rack san francisco california region and had a 6 a.m call time ryan filmed the day before while i was in california i came in and filmed the next day and then we filmed together the following day and you know that was crazy december wrapped up in a bow we went into launch our original launch date was march 15th oh, we were beta testing so well they moved it up to march 5th very fortuitously because I had a, it was a very different news cycle on March 5th than it was on the 15th, 16th. And it just ended up becoming this really great opportunity and doing it was so much fun. Ryan and I discovered how much we like have in common. We have a similar philosophy of food and drink and love cooking. And, and that really came together and we've known each other for years, but that was like a time to really get to know each other deeper and work together on a project, which was really awesome. And and I think what what kind of got me through a time of, you know, intense, you know, insecurity where all we're like, what's going on in this world? Where are we going back to? You know, I've been fortunate enough to have all the clients I work with and, and they, you know, worked really hard to keep the restaurants opened and to give us opportunities to keep pushing things forward. And I had a lot of opportunity to do R&D with my head bartenders over that time, just because what else could we do? We're like, okay, well, let's keep dialing in on what the future is going to look like and, and, and find, you know, the resources to do that. But I found this great passion for teaching people 
in a different way, you know, because I've been very fortunate and had the opportunity to speak at Tales of the Cocktail, you know, Bar Convent all over the world, London Cocktail Weeks and all these things. But it was the first time I had a real opportunity to engage with the consumer in a very different way. And this is really, you know, I got through quarantine on a professional level through that connection. Uh, you know, Masterclass opened many, many doors for me for building an online virtual happy hour business. I was get, getting calls from big companies who were, you know, didn't have their Christmas parties where it had to do things, virtual things. And I was very lucky that there was a whole marketing machine putting me out there and people had taken the class and they're like, what if we can get her to teach a class for everybody? And so that became a new kind of revenue stream for me and a new opportunity. And um, I've loved that. You know, Ryan and I've done a couple we did a class just for the masterclass team as their holiday parties. We did a very specific one about Earth Day. We did, you know, kind of sustainable spirits and cocktails for them. We did a contest for subscribers for New Year's Eve last year. So they all submitted cocktails online. 20 of them got to go and have a special class with us just about New Year's Eve cocktails. And we just ended a competition last week. And I'm going to be executing the next couple weeks. And I'm paired with uh, Chef Gabriela Camara from Contramar in Mexico City. And she and I are teaching a class for Dia de los Muertos, and she's going to teach them how to make a sweet corn tamal, and I'm teaching them how to make a traditional Dia de los Muertos-inspired cocktail. And so those things have come up, and it's, you know, and, you know, when I'm reading all the entries or I'm seeing people tag or someone just pops into my DMs or tags a photo of, of something they created um, from class is really, really exciting. And they're like, I made my first Pisco Sour, for example, and people will tag, like, I did it. I wasn't afraid I, I used egg whites or, hey, thanks for telling me to sub aquafaba because I'm vegan and I could do that. Um, and that kind of direct feedback, because you as a bartender, you're giving your drink, it goes away. If you're working surf bar, it goes, you know, into the into the atmosphere. The server brings it to the table and you don't get that connection. You don't see that direct relation. So I really love doing this. I hope that I can keep expanding that as we get out of virtual world into real world and having more of these kind of workshops, demos with consumers and, and keep bringing them along with us because I think, you know, the more they have done it at home, I found people coming into the bars and restaurants have a much higher respect for the for the skill set. You know, they want to come to bars and they want to sit at your bar and they want to watch bartenders do it because they've been doing it at home and they don't want to just keep doing it at home all the time. Like, yes, do they make Negronis at home and, and simple drinks? Yes. But like, there's this wonderful engagement now that is, is really, uh, just changed in a lot of good ways and and i love seeing that they're you know really getting involved with the craft absolutely i mean as a consumer we all went through this collective trauma and we're home sitting there and the fact that it popped up and and two of the biggest people in drinks are going to teach me in my home how to make something when you know, I, I'm not a bartender. I don't make a cocktail. And people are always asking, hey, can you make us a cocktail? And to give, <laughs> so I'm like, uh, well, I go to bars to, you know, to have cocktails, but to, you know, have to get a handle on that. I, I felt like you were, you both were with me the whole time. And I was at a bar and talking to you. I know that sounds a little like salty, I love that. but, but no, it I really it. was, it really meant you know, okay, every night I had something to do that was bar related while watching every single bar. I mean, I do cocktail tours in London and Milk and Honey closed forever. And I used to do a tour, oh. you know, I used to go to Milk and Honey in London. Yeah. And, you know, as I see, you know, my friends who have bars are suffering, 
you know, I think, okay, there's hope. There's people are still doing stuff. And then the cocktail boom. So as someone who took it, I really, really valued it for more than just a cocktail class, I believe. And, um, and the teaching thing, you know, now I feel a little bit comfortable. And I also, by the way, the one tool that I had to get because of it, you, you guys should have <laughs> shares in it is the lemon squeezer. Oh my well, God, yeah. <laughs> best thing ever. All right, you guys, I was like, oh my God, I've given those just so many people as presidents. But, you know, I love the idea of, of teaching and you're wanting to do that. Now, I, I have to, having worked at a breast cancer charity myself mm -hmm. and my father, who unfortunately just passed away, was a breast cancer surgeon. I really want to just talk a little bit about speed rack in case anyone who's listening doesn't know about it. Because as I said, I lived my life with someone who always helped women. My dad was a great breast cancer surgeon and we had a charity. So uh, please That's tell amazing. me a little bit about how, how speed rack started and sure. how people can give really if they want to, or be involved if they're listening. Yeah. I mean, speed rack started in 2011 with my partner, Ivy Mix. You know, it started from a lot of different places. So one of the inspirations of where it kind of started was in 2009, I started the New York chapter of Lupec, which is Ladies United for the Preservation of Endangered Cocktails. And I was inspired to start that because I met the Boston chapter, which was spearheaded by Misty Kalkofen of, of Boston from Del McKay and uh, Kitty Amen as well from Boston. And they were doing these awesome kind of feminist get together cocktail events, and they were raising money for local women's based charities in the Boston area. And I thought, what a great way of getting one, getting women together to work together and then to have an impact on their community. So I started a chapter in New York because I had kind of, you know, when I became a full time brand ambassador, the thing about becoming a full time brand ambassador is that you go to a lot of bars that you just weren't in your normal rotation, right? So when I was bartending, it's what happens. You go visit your friends where they work. And so my circle was everyone who was basically from my Flatiron days, Pega Club, because um, a lot of them worked there, and then like my Freeman's days. So, you know, I was surrounded by predominantly male bartenders. And as I started branching out into going to different accounts is where I started meeting these incredible women bartenders like why don't i know who they are this is kind of crazy like they're so talented why like they should be working and you know in those other places that are like getting all the press and and so one of one of the women i met um was a woman named aaron reese and she was she's amazing she's a speed rack winner since she won the second season but she was like doing her tale of the cocktail entry cocktail and you know i tasted i'm like this is amazing this woman can really like build drinks and We've become really good friends and she has skyrocketed Death and Company, uh, Maya Well and Aaron's incredible talent and teacher and growing a real great community of bartenders through her, her, her bar programs. But I started these ideas. I was like, okay, well, I need to get all these women together in a way so we can start doing these events. So, so we did. We would do takeovers of Death and Company. We'd take over Macau Bar and do charity events. And it would change. We would have things we did a lot for, things like Bottomless Closet and organizations that were about helping with professional growth for women who didn't have enough resources, things would be like, okay, they go ahead and they set up interview prep, resumes, buy suits for these women who are trying to have advancement in the workplace and, and all those things. So just really thinking about those social issues and how to get more women supported in their endeavors. And so I met Ivy when I was randomly filling in a shift at Maya Well for, for Phil. He was like, hey, you know, 
I have triplets who work here. They all have a wedding and I need someone to help on the serve on this Saturday night. I was like, sure, I'll do that for you. And I met Ivy that night and, you know, she was kind of really struggling to get behind cocktail bars. She had experience. She lived in Guatemala, had bartended for years, um, but was having a really hard time breaking into the craft cocktail scene behind the bar. And I was like, well, start doing these events with me. And so she started joining those events and subsequently she ended up working for Juliet Lonikai, which was my mentor. So, and then opening a bar with her later on, opening land with Julie. So she started doing that. And then there was one event in particular, uh, Don Lee and John Darragon, who started the Tales of the Cocktail Batch program and, and like the, the whole CAP program. And they invited us. They're like, hey, Lupac group, do you want, and, and there were chapters all over, California, Texas, Canada had one. And we would meet at Tales and kind of talk through. And they're like, if you want to see if your, if your chapters want to send uh, women to New York to basically run the seminars and learn and and do the batching learn all those skill sets do all the prep for the conference you know and then you all get to come here attend the conference and whatever so do this kind of cap program so we did we brought all these women from across the country who came in and and we were all there in the kitchen working it running you know all the pouring out the pours the seminars doing this and um it was funny ivy was on a break with another friend of ours rachel shaw outside and there was this Someone was doing this like filming of this like bartender videos and they're like, we don't have any women. We're, there are no women bartenders. And she was like, well, they're like all here. They're just There's back in the house. Inside. Yeah, they're just all back <laughs> in the house making this conference run. So they both went and did the video and Ivy came back. She's like, you know, like it, it you're like, I know one knows who I am. I'm not like, they're like, not like we need Ivy Mix to do this. She's like, I was just a, a woman. I was just like a token. I was just like, you know, here I am. And she's like, yeah, she just called it speed rack, you know, and that's it. All they wanted to see was me shake and that's, and that's it. So she just thought about it a little longer. And we ran, she ran into me a few months later and was like, Hey, like I have this idea. I don't know what it is, but you know, we should kind of do like the Lupec model. I, I'm calling it speed rack. Let's do a charity for it. Let's do breast cancer. And I was like, that's great. My mother-in-law's a survivor. I would love to do that. And we can do this charity for women. And we just kind of went into planning. I'm a big fan of kind of food competition TV shows. So I was like, well, I like, look, let's borrow from here and here and let's do what we want to do. And we're, and the big thing for us was like, okay, well, what, what should this competition be? It should be a cocktail competition that's based on classic cocktails. Cause to us, that was the, the foundation of growth. You know, if you didn't know classic cocktails, you couldn't make your version of something. And when these competitions that were all about like, make your whatever version of this. And so we felt like there was an opportunity to kind of build a training program, reintroduce classics to people who, if they didn't have the opportunity to work at the bars that we were, you know, at this point working in, you know, that had big foundations and classics that expected you to know them. So to kind of build this training course, and then we were fortunate enough to get, you know, Dale DeGroff and Julie Reiner and Dave Wandrich and all these people that we were lucky, Audrey Saunders. And we were fortunate enough to have as teachers to judge the competition and share that mentorship through this comp. And we're like, and it has to be based on what happens on a Friday night. You know, the American bar scene is not patient. They want their craft cocktails and they want them fast. And so you have to like be building crazy drink rounds. And so we're like, okay, it's Friday night. You're working this service well and for industry like Luminary City or Bar. Like, all right, there's Charlotte Boise and... Dave Wadridge and Julie Reiner and Dale just sat at your bar. What are you going to do? 
How are you going to like make them? And chatting the- to you, right? At yep, the same time. Chatting right. to you. You have to make four of the uh, best cocktails of your life for them, but you also have to get back to the 70 seats that are waiting for you to build drinks. So that's uh-huh. how we formulated the competition. But it grew into this, like from a, a, a training ground and from women competing to win it. And in that way, it really became more of a, of a sisterhood and a mentorship of each other. And, a, you know, this past year, We've raised, I mean, so globally, we've done events in London. We did four events in the UK. We've done two in Australia, two in Asia, one in Hong Kong, one in Singapore. We did four in Canada in addition to the US. So we just launched digitally this year. And we monitored it from afar, Russia and St. Petersburg. And Grand Cayman is doing their first competition that we're monitoring from afar. So it's expanding like the mission of bringing, we did Mexico City too, it was actually our, our first Latin speaking country. So it's a big community. And through that, we were able to offer trips to distilleries, opportunities for education, things like the Bar Scholarship, the Beverage Alcohol Resource. Um, The founders of that gave us scholarships to give to our competitors. We've had WSET opportunities come through that we're able to give to our community and really advance opportunities for women in the hospitality industry. And this year when we were went dark with Speedrack, you know, normally every year we raise over $100,000 for our breast cancer charities, it's been very hard without events because our events would make $25,000 easily in big mm-hmm. cities. And so it's been hard to kind of find a way to supplement that, but we do the best we can and kind of we're selling right now cocktail kits through an organization called Shaker and Spoon. And that's raising a ton of money for our charities. And we're just trying to find unique ways. We did a bunch of cocktail classes, all these kind of things. But we hope to get back on the road and, and really be able to do more of these competitions, raise more money. Our, our charity that we have a, a link to a few U.S. ones on our website. So if you go to speed-rack.com, one's the Pink Agenda, which what we love about that one is that they are very multi-pronged. They go do everything from supporting survivors from survivors, so, so peer mentorship survivor to uh, women going through uh, treatment at the moment, to things like heavily into research. So progressing the research, but also in working and discovering disparities between ethnic groups and trying to really dial in so we can have a better way of understanding and diagnosing and treating everybody. And also a focus on and, and advocating for younger women who have histories to be able to have access to things like mammograms and, and breast scans that are normally prohibited because they're like, okay, not until you're 40. And it's like, okay, if these women have history, they should be allowed to check earlier because it's about timing with catching breast cancer. Um, the survival rate goes absolutely way up um, if you're catching it at an early point. And so it could be too late. So that's kind of where we're at right now. Keeping up this, our mentorship program was actually a global mentorship program, which was amazing. The Speed Rack Advisory Squad, we just finished the English speaking and we just launched one for Latin America for Spanish speakers. So those are going on classes, education, just offering any sort of resources we think, you know, that women coming out of this pandemic might need as new skill sets or, or just discovery of finding where you want to go, where your path of career is and having that opportunity to have someone on that journey with you um, has been really great. And we're going to keep fundraising for our organizations and, and trying to make sure that we can raise as much money as possible, but lending in any way, but at this point, resources to those organizations in form of like, we just did their virtual gala, helps them hopefully raise a lot of money for people attending and paying a higher mm-hmm. ticket for uh, 
for Lauren Paler and I doing a happy hour for them. So we'll see I see happens. a theme and the theme is giving back. We're fortunate in the industry and in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of the things when I thought about when even when I was starting the New York Lupac chapter and thinking about the charities, I'm like, you look, these people I know, these bartenders want to give back and what they have that they can give back is their skill. They can donate their time. They may not have a ton of extra cash lying around, but they're happy to jump behind a bar, shake out some drinks, and help support great causes. Absolutely. Now, I always end asking what, (laughs) and it's giving back, what are your top tips for the new bartender? So again, I'm asking you to teach. Sure. But if there were like a few things coming from you, if someone has never really picked up a bottle, they don't really know, they they really want to get into it after watching your masterclass, okay, (laughs) (laughs) what would you advise them as the first way to start? Sure. I mean, I always tell people if you're interested in bartending, the first book you need to get is The Joy of Mixology from Gaz Regan. I think Gaz, Gary, such a dear friend. What he brought to all of us in that book is such a simple way of breaking down what bartending is, how to build drinks. And if you can take that book and understand very simply how to build drinks, then you have the building blocks. You know, and that, that to me was such a, a revelation when reading it and the charts he has in there. Because it makes it less intimidating, right? So you can come with that simple knowledge and then you can, it almost helps you like read recipes better because you're like, okay, there's that sweet sour mix. Okay, they're balancing these ingredients. Um, And then after that, I say just kind of experiment, play, be humble. Don't be afraid to say you don't know what something is. I think that's the hardest thing is not everyone comes in with this giant arsenal of knowledge and but you may you know when I'm hiring people it's about a a personality are they a team player are they willing to learn are they willing to say here's what I don't know can you help because asking for that help is more uh, valuable than somebody who's just gonna try to fake it so I I prefer the honesty I prefer that transparency and we can work on it that's exciting people who just want to grow um, I think is really good so just you know be be earnest be honest be accountable And then I think, and and read The Joy of Mixology, start there. And then from there, you can figure out which direction you want to go and what next books you want to grab to progress. And that'll probably come from the leadership in in what far you're working at. They might be telling, like, say, hey, yeah, we get a lot of stuff from, you know, the Cocktail Codex. Maybe you want to then get that book or borrow it from the the restaurant library if you you do. I've got to have that kind of set up, um, you know, and then also start playing around with flavors, learn from flavor pairing. The... Food pairing Bibles and all of those things are awesome. You know, if you're working in a place with a chef, they probably have it. Just if they have a copy of it on site that you can take a look at for your shift, come in early, maybe flip through it and just kind of play with some some seasonal things. Think about different flavor pairings and open up your world to that. It's funny. When I first started the podcast, I spoke to a bartending. Actually, he was a bar consultant then. A friend of mine, I was like, do I need to become a bartender to do this podcast? And he said, no, you just need three books. And one of those books was <laughs> The Joy of Mixology. So I ran out and I got that one. Another one was the David Wandrich one and yep. one Dale DeGraff. So I bought those three books right away. And I was like, <laughs> okay, I don't know if I'll ever become a bartender, but I certainly have learned a whole lot that I didn't know just from going out to bars and drinking. And also every bartender is so excited. If you're excited about their drink, they're excited to talk about 100%. it. 100 <laughs> percent. Yeah. I always feel that. Now I I can't leave you with ask without asking, and this can get poignant at this time 
after, you know, I started asking this pre-pandemic, but if there's one place that you could go and have one cocktail anywhere in the world, where would that be? I've been dying to go to Tayer Elementary and sit with Monica and get a cocktail. First, we'll have a little champagne and toast. And then I want one of her cocktails. It's been on my list. And I was really like about to head there. You know, hopefully like I was going to be there June 2020. And I was like super excited. Can't wait to see her bar and look at what they're doing. And so Monica, I will see you soon. <laughs> and I will get to your bar and I sit there. And that cheers. And I want to taste that delicious mango thing you've been showing that you're sous vide on, <laughs> on Instagram. So let, let me tell you, it's very, very good. Uh, and I can't wait <laughs> to share that cocktail with you when great. you come over here to London. I thank you so much for being my 200th guest. Yay! It is such <laughs> a thrill and honor. And um, I can't wait to meet you in New York in real life once I can get over there again. 100%. And go to Lama, Lama Inn and Lama San. I just, they're definitely have been on my list for ages. Amazing. Well, thank you so much and congratulations. Aha, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, see you in New York. Thanks so much to Lynette for being on the program. I cannot wait to join her for a cocktail in real life. So on to our very special cocktail of the week. The Cocktail of the Week is Lynette's Clara Bow. While Lynette recommends reaching for a bourbon with a high rye content, feel free to go all out and use a rye whiskey as an alternative base spirit. You'll need half an ounce of grenadine, half an ounce of Saint-Germain elderflower liqueur, three quarters of an ounce of fresh lemon juice, one and a half ounces of bourbon, five to six mint leaves, and a mint sprig for garnish. Add all the ingredients except for the mint sprig to a shaker. Add ice and then shake, shake, shake. Using both a hawthorn strainer and then a fine mesh strainer, pour the contents into a coupe glass. Then garnish with a mint sprig. If you want to make the grenadine from scratch, then head to this recipe at alushlifemanual.com where you'll find even more recipes and all the ingredients in our shop. Two hundred episodes, six and a half years. Jeez, what a load of drinks I've had. Touched down in Venice last week and tried two new cocktail bars, the Amman and the St. Regis. Thanks to all of them for treating us so well. So if you live for Lush Life, make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants you love and tell them how much you love them. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Next time, we're meeting a reverend who had a soft spot for a tipple or two. Until that time, bottoms up.